2: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, May 11. I'm Ashley Norwood in for Karen Brown. And this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, clinicians and other health professionals address a staggering decline in vaccination rates. Then two boards governing Mississippi's education communities are facing unfilled vacancies. We talked to a state senator about the situation. Plus, it's Hurricane Preparedness Week. Hear what the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is telling residents ahead of hurricane season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. The number of people receiving the coronavirus vaccine in Mississippi is on the decline. And some health experts say fear and confusing language have created a segment of the population reticent towards getting the shot. Clinics in Mississippi are ordering less coronavirus vaccine doses as demand for the shots declines. Since the start of April, vaccination rates have dropped nearly 65%. And last week, fewer than 50,000 people were vaccinated in Mississippi. Matthew Walker with Memorial Hospital in Gulfport tells our Kobe Vance demand slowed once older residents got vaccinated.
3: We have seen our vaccination efforts um, start to slow, uh, meaning that we we have plenty of vaccines on hand, uh, but the number of um, folks that are interested in receiving the vaccines has has definitely slowed down over the last probably three or four weeks.
4: Yeah, that seems to be a trend across the state right now. What are your thoughts on that, and um, what do you think is the overall trend mean?
3: So so I think there is a lot of dis with the vaccines. And, and I think it's just um, you know the result of, of the whole kind of pandemic in and of itself. I, I can speak for, for what we've seen is is early on, particularly with the, the elderly population, we, we were seeing a very good response. Those people were showing up at you know in, in groups of a thousand plus. Uh, whenever we would have a vaccine offering, uh, we've kind of run through those people and now we're, we're to the other subgroups of the population.
2: Recent research indicates many who say they will not get a coronavirus vaccine will not change their opinion if shown evidence. Dr. Rambot Rubash with Hattiesburg Clinic says demand in his area for the vaccine has declined, in large part due to fear around the vaccine. He says poor word choice used in the initial vaccine rollout may be contributing to hesitancy.
5: The only thing that we've done well over the course of this pandemic as a nation is in developing these vaccines and doing so at record pace in regards to making sure they're studied. It's important to be careful how we phrase this, because I think some of the the vocabulary that we've used, things like warp speed, have played a role in making people hesitant to get this vaccine. So let's talk about warp speed. Warp speed is in reference to the government's effort to fund the ability for these vaccines to be studied and then distributed. But specifically with the messenger RNA technology, that was in the works for 10 to 15 years. This is an example of chance favoring the prepared mind. And by the time that the Chinese released the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2, Moderna had one week later submitted to the NIH a proposal for a vaccine. So that comes about not because they did it all in one week, but they were prepared for this inevitable outbreak 10 to 15 years ahead of time. So we had a vaccine ready for study a full month before the first American died of COVID-19. The remainder of the approval process for phase two and phase three trials, commenced just as it otherwise would have. We were just able to get more people enrolled in these studies more quickly. I run clinical trials for the Heisberg Clinic, and we have a number of trials going at any given time. We have a heck of a time getting people to enroll in anything, but we did not have any problem getting people enrolled into the COVID-19 vaccine trials. And that was another part of the process that went much quicker than it usually does in clinical trials. So... I think we have to be careful um, when we tell people that these vaccines were, were developed in record time. No steps were ta- were skipped, however. So I think that's what we're dealing with. We are now at a point where people are fearful, legitimately fearful. They're worried that this was developed too quickly. They're worried that there could be side effects they're worried that there's some conspiracies in terms of microchips and some other such things. And it's important for us to address all of those concerns with compassion and with a sense of understanding that this is new and it's OK to be fearful.
4: You mentioned that people feel like some people feel like the, the Pfizer vaccine or Moderna vaccine were rushed um, because of Operation Warp Speed and they still have that tag of emergency use authorization tied to their name. Uh, I, there's been reports that Pfizer is going to apply f- at the end of this, um, at the end of the month for full full authorization of their vaccine. Uh, do you think that could help um, in terms of helping, um, you know, ease the minds of some individuals when it comes to uh, getting vaccinated? I do. I think language matters,
5: words matter. And once you remove some of these obstacles, I think that can potentially play a role. Moreover, my understanding is once emergency use authorization is removed, there are entities that can then mandate vaccination. As you know, when you enroll in the military, there's a number of vaccines that those recruits have to undergo. This can be yet another one of those vaccines that's required by entities like the military and other uh, places of employment.
4: When it comes to trying to build more trust, What are some of the ways that y'all are uh, reaching out to the community to help build that trust?
5: I think it's important to meet people where they're at. So you have to find people that are trusted in the community. And whether that is a religious leader, a medical leader, a familial leader, um, it starts with education when you're trying to overcome fear. So we've certainly had a number of public outreach events. It started, to be quite honest, with our own physicians. When we first got approval for these vaccines, our own group of doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners had a lot of concerns and questions about this new technology. So we put together a forum of local um, vaccine experts, if you will, and we had a town hall where we essentially answered the question of our colleagues and um, talked about the information that we now have. And then we expanded that out. We expanded that out to the community, and we've continued to do things like that. I've personally um, been utilizing resources like yours in speaking with the media. That's proven to be highly effective. Um, It's really about meeting people where they're at. And then, of course, um, where we have our influences individually, one-on-one in the doctor's office. And unfortunately, these vaccines have not been readily available in local community uh, family physician offices or pediatrics offices because of the complexity associated with these messenger RNA vaccines. We, we need to meet people where they're at locally, one-on-one in the doctor's office, and then get again a little bit more broadly with uh, mass media and maybe our own outreach uh, that we've done thus far.
4: Dr. Rambod Rubash is Principal Investigator for Medicine Clinical Research at Hattiesburg Clinic. Dr. Rubash, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Dr. Rubash says the recent emergency authorization by the FDA that allows for use of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine in children's aged 12 to 15 could help increase demand for the shots in Mississippi. Coming up, two boards governing Mississippi's education communities are facing unfilled vacancies. We talked to a state senator about the situation. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. Four positions on the Board of Trustees responsible for policy and financial oversight of Mississippi's state universities remain vacant going into the summer. The Institutions of Higher Learning is led by a board consisting of 12 governor-appointed members, each serving nine terms, nine-year terms. Four of those terms expired last Friday, and Governor T. Reeves has yet to appoint replacements to be confirmed by the Senate and the State Board of Education, which oversees K-12 through public schools in Mississippi, is on the cusp of a similar situation. Republican Senator Nicole Boyd, who serves as vice chair on the College and Universities Committee, tells our Michael Gidry the boards will still be able to serve the state despite the current vacancies.
6: The IHL board can continue to meet. It has to have a quorum of eight. And so there are eight members left. So the board will have to make sure and assure that they have have all eight members present um, at those meetings, but they still will be able to conduct business as usual as long as they have those eight members present.
1: And if someone cannot be present or, in some cases, may have to recuse themselves when discussing particular matters, uh, will the board be able to continue with its work?
6: The board should be able to continue its work until the um, governor is able to um, make those appointees. and when they do, I believe that um, the Senate under um, Chair, Chairman Rita Parks will um, with, act without haste um, and review those appointees.
1: On the other side of things, there's the State Board of Education, which uh, is right. kind of facing the same predicament. Uh, there are some vacancies arising are, are there. Uh, what can you tell us about the State Board of Education, the number of uh, you know members rolling over, and the status of okay. those replacements?
6: Okay. So the Mississippi State Board of Education oversees um, the policies and financial management of the Mississippi Department of Education. Um, And that board is made up of nine members whose terms are staggered as well. That board, and like the college board, those um, the governor does appoint um, five of those appointees, and then the lieutenant governor and the speaker both each appoint two members as well. And so we have some vacancies on that board. Um, So we have five members that are permanently serving on the board. One of those numbers, I believe, rolls off in at the end of June. Um, but we have, um, we have the, um, Lieutenant Governor and the Speaker who have two appointees, um, to that board as well. And that board only requires a quorum of five. And so the Board of Education should be able, after those appointments are made by the Lieutenant Governor and the Speaker, should be able to um, continue to function as well um, until um, we are able to get the governor's appointments before the Senate.
1: You know, some sometimes board members step away uh, or retire unexpectedly. You know, maybe not finish out their term. Uh, but in, in this conversation, we, we you know we've talked a lot about those expected vacancies, those ones that have members rolling off of their term. The legislature was in session uh, from from January to April. These were terms and. Uh, and spots on these boards that that were anticipated, we knew that these members would be rolling off. We knew that replacements were needed. You know, as a member of both these committees, would you have liked to handle uh, this business during the session rather than having to deal with the dilemma of empty board seats as the summer months and the fall months kind of approach?
6: I. Um, y- y- You know, I think um, many of us like to do many things differently. I'm I'm not going to second guess of the governor in this. However, I think the board should still be able to function in this. Um, Also, too, we need to um, have some understanding, some grace. We've been in the middle of COVID. Um, We've had a number of issues that we've had to deal with. And so um, I think that these boards should be able to function still, um, and they should still be able to execute the business of the state. Um, it will be under different circumstances here, but we look forward, when we have the appointments from the governor, to acting um, without haste um, when we get back in session and able to confirm these appointments.
1: Will you have to wait until the regular scheduled session uh, resumes in January, or you do you anticipate being called back for a special session to take care of these vacancies? Um,
6: well, I don't... We could be called back for a number of issues um, that might be added to the call. It will be up to the governor. Um, we may, we could very well be called back, especially um, once we see what the federal government's doing with the American Rescue Funds. Um, there's many, there's um, probably ample opportunities that we will have, um, possibly that we could be called back in um, before the session begins in January. And so it would be up to the governor to add these issues to the call.
1: Senator Nicole Boyd. Vice Chair of the Colleges and Universities Committee, member of the Education Committee. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, this information and and providing us a little bit of insight on, on these boards and how they will potentially function over the next few months.
2: Thank you. Coming up is Hurricane Preparedness Week. Hear what the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is telling residents ahead of hurricane season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.
6: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. The Magnolia State has been battered by, with waves of severe weather in recent weeks as spring storms have yielded multiple tornadoes in April and May. Now the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is asking residents to prepare for another annual weather threat, hurricanes. Mima is recognizing Hurricane Preparedness Week this week, each day with a specific topic for Mississippians to consider. Today's focus is building a disaster kit. And as Mima's Mallory White tells our Michael Guidry, that starts with understanding the first 72 is on you.
0: That means the first 72 hours after a hurricane hits you, the first 72 hours are on you to survive. And the reason we're saying that is because there's actually a lot of red tape that goes on behind the scenes in getting commodities to those affected areas. We have to activate emergency contracts. We have to get with FEMA, so FEMA can bring in resources, and that takes time. Not only that, though, you also have to keep in mind we are battling an ongoing hurricane. so we have to make sure that it is actually safe for commodities to be driven through those impacted areas. And our are roads actually clear uh, of power lines and debris for us to get through? So in your disaster kit, you need to have at least 72 hours worth of food and water for your family. One person in your family needs a gallon of water per day. Another thing is, is whenever you're stocking up your food, make sure you get non-perishable food. And remember, it's not just one meal a day. You have to plan for your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so think granola bars, dry cereals, canned vegetables, canned soups, and the wonderful peanut butter. It is what kept me functioning during Hurricane Katrina. Peanut butter actually has a lot of good nutrition that can help you um sustain. So, Of course, food and water, obviously your two main concerns, but are you someone that relies on insulin or very specific prescriptions? How are you going to keep that insulin cold? Do you have enough prescriptions to last you until you can get to a pharmacy that's actually open? Make sure you have that. And so important to have your weather radio and cash on hand power outages happen. Your your gas stations, your grocery stores are only accepting cash. Go ahead and take some cash out. Have it stashed and ready to go in your supply kit just in case the power goes out. Make sure you have a phone charger that doesn't rely on electricity. You can get battery powered phone chargers and it will charge your phone. And then the ever important documents. So, this goes from your home insurance your mortgage information, your car insurance, your credit card information, your birth certificates, your marriage licenses, all all of those important documents need to be stashed in a weatherproof container.
1: We typically associate hurricane and you know, hurricane activity with, with the coastal areas. You know, they're the most mm-hmm. vulnerable, clearly, because these are storms that generate in the Atlantic Ocean, Caribbean Sea, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but this is a statewide effort, so, you know, and and we're asking all Mississippians to prepare. Well, why is it important for you know all of Mississippi, from from Biloxi to Batesville, to to prepare for hurricanes uh, and and the, the potential impact, even though those effects might vary.
0: We want all of Mississippi to be prepared for any type of severe weather. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that tornadoes can actually spin off of hurricanes, and I think all of Mississippi is very familiar with tornadoes, but um, any. It, it, we just never know. Each storm system is different. Each storm system, it may dissipate once it hits 49 in Hattiesburg, or it could keep going all the way up into the Tupelo area. Even if it downgrades to a tropical storm or a tropical depression, you could still feel the impact from uh what happened, what formed in the Gulf all the way up to North Mississippi. And you just never know how wide the bands would be. So you may experience flash flooding in an area you never thought that you would experience it from. And so that's why it's important to have your severe weather preparedness, your disaster kit, have that on hand. And actually you should have that on hand all year round because Mississippi really doesn't get a break in severe weather. We go from spring severe weather, to hurricane season, to fall severe weather, and now winter weather as we saw. And so it's always best to be prepared year-round in Mississippi. But yes, going back to your original question, from North Mississippi to South Mississippi, you could feel an effect from a hurricane. Just because the Gulf Coast counties may feel the direct impact, you could feel the residual. You can feel the wind bands. You may uh, be affected by some high winds because the hurricane doesn't stop. It does drift and it does downgrade. And who knows, you may be in the path of, that, um, of it downgrading.
1: The Atlantic season last year was record-breaking. Uh, and throughout the season, Mississippi, especially coastal Mississippi, seemed to dodge a number of, of direct hits. How can we make sure that you know complacency doesn't become a factor because we had a lot of close calls. We had one uh, event with, with Zeta last year, but after such an active season that did not see Mississippi severely impacted like our neighbors to the east and west, how do we make sure residents stay, um, stay alert and stay on top of it and take any threat seriously?
0: Well, honestly, Michael, that's something that we are worried about even right now as we're dealing with severe weather until Wednesday is complacency. People see, um, you know, a, a storm prediction map and, oh, it's only these certain colors. It shouldn't be that bad. But you could experience severe weather at any time. And and that's what we want people to understand is even if Mississippi is not in the direct path of a hurricane, we could still feel some effects of it. And Hurricane data was actually quite costly, and we still have residents in the Gulf Coast area still recovering from that. It was bad enough for us to get an individual assistance declaration, and that's not something that happens very often. It, it has to be pretty catastrophic for us to get an individual assistance declaration. And I want people to understand just how severe it was. So we did not get us lucky. Yes, we did dodge. Some of the bigger ones like Laura and Marco and poor Louisiana, I think they got like five direct hits during hurricane season last year. And and we can feel some of those, we can feel the rain coming off of those. And some of our counties are, are affected by wind bands and rain bands that come off of these hurricanes. And so we want people to heed the warning, watch the meteorologists, pay close attention this hurricane season. I know it's exhausting. We've gone through a pandemic. We went through a pandemic during hurricane season. Um, Now we're bracing for tornadoes, which seems like almost every week. I know it can be exhausting, but life safety is our number one priority. And if we can help save just one life by putting out an extra tweet, doing one more extra interview to try and get someone to listen, it's worth it. So we just wish people... We don't want them to become complacent because the second you do, the second you let your guard down, always remember Mother Nature gets a vote in all of this. We may have dodged a tornado. We may have dodged a hurricane, but we may not do it this coming season.
1: Mallory White, uh, Director of External Affairs with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, thank you so much uh, for laying out all the things we need to consider to prepare for this next hurricane season.
2: Thank you. For more on how MEMA is helping residents prepare for hurricane season, visit msema.org. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.